Canada, bonjour, hi Canada, it's you, Hewitt, that music means we have reached the last radio hour of my week, and it is always the Hillsdale Dialogue, sponsored by Hillsdale College, and for many, many years I have sat down and chatted with uh, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and one of his team, or two of his team, and today we are joined by Professor Adam Carrington, because I'm going to talk about Grant. I don't know if Dr. Arn is with us, but I know that all things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu, and I know that Professor Carrington is here. Good morning, Professor. How are you? I'm doing very well. Hope you all are, too. I am. I, I want to give you the background as to why we jumped ahead. I asked uh, Dr. Arn to set up a conversation about Grant. I was talking this week with a former member of the Cabinet, who is reading extensively on the lives of three people, Nelson Mandela, Carl Gustav Emil Mannerheim, who put Finland back together again twice, and Grant, because this individual believes we are in a period of political conflict, not unlike that which came in Reconstruction. So I started the Ron Chernow biography, which is magnificent. I learned more about Grant in about five hours of listening than I knew. How did you come to make Grant a study? Well, it really came from my study of the courts during Reconstruction. I had been looking at uh, Stephen Field, a Lincoln appointee to the court that was there for all of Grant's administration, and who had, and a lot of it came from me looking at how the courts did a good or bad job, depending upon the case, of enforcing civil rights for African Americans in the South, enforcing the new 14th Amendment. And it drove it drove me really over to Grant because, unlike some of the older histories, I started to see how much the executive branch had been more than I think the judicial active and vigorous in taking on what was a really monumental task, which is how do you protect the future and the rights of the freed slaves after having been in bondage as long as they had and after now dealing with what was at that time really a, a horrible situation in the Reconstruction South, facing terror, facing mobs and lynchings, and, and how much um, the, the Grand Administration really did more than its means in trying to do so. That, that really pushed me into a study of him, having looked at how another branch, I think, didn't do as good a job. And Professor Carrington, have you read the Chernow biography? I have. It's been a little bit, but I, I I thought it was, as usual with him, he is such a good storyteller, and I think it's a good and a line of works that are trying to rehabilitate Grant from the reputation that he had had as president for a very long time. Uh, that's it's, it's quite a revelation to me. We are joined now by Dr. Arn. Good morning, Dr. Arn. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Did we wake you up? Did we get you out of bed? I, I'm, I'm sorry about that. It's 8 o'clock. No, I was, I was a little late calling that in because I was bored. <laughs> <laughs> Look, how did you know Grant a lot better than I know Grant, uh, but did you esteem Grant uh, prior to this rarely, fairly recent reconsideration of his presidency? Yeah, I, so I have loved Ulysses Grant since I was a boy, which is a really odd thing. I grew up in Arkansas, uh, and I always thought he was just a cat's meow, and I read a lot of books about him as a kid, and uh, I think he was a better general than some give him credit for, although the very fine, as Adam says, Cherno biography improves his reputation in that regard. And, uh, and then the Reconstruction stuff, that just shines, in my opinion. I think he just, uh, he, he did, 
as well as a man could do. And, you know, that's a very difficult problem, of course, and it, you know, generations trying to get, trying to fix it. But, uh, he, he was, and he was tough. You know, I mean, some of his Confederate general adversaries, you know, especially Nathan Bedford Forrest, they were chief obstacles to Reconstruction, and he just fought them. Well, I, I, you missed the beginning when I, I told Professor Carrington that this, and this might take a couple of weeks, I was talking to a former senior member of the administration, cabinet member, about the political situation we are in this week. And this individual told me he is reading Mandela, he is reading Carl Gustav Emil Mannerheim, who I had never heard of, who put Finland together twice after wars, and he's reading in Grant and Reconstruction, and that he esteems Grant greatly. And that was news to me. Uh, so I picked up Chernow, and I am I'm pretty impressed with just the first five hours. So, uh, Professor Carrington, will you set the scene for us after the war ends? Because Reconstruction is what happens after Appomattox. Right. It, it's amazing how little often in our public discourse we talk about that era, given how much we speak of the Civil War itself. And you have a... A, a catastrophic event where uh, Lincoln had called in 1861 for us to not replace, bull, uh, to, to, to appeal to ballots, not bullets, to settle our differences, and it didn't work. We had the, the bloodiest war as far as American casualties we'd ever had. And so one of the questions after you do that in a civil war, especially a civil war where you're facing, um, where you're trying to put a country back together, not just uh, separate from another an, another country is how do you return to politics after that and you have this amazing vindication of the union against rebellion and the declaration of independence and its principles of freedom and liberty with the enshrining of the of the 13th amendment but you, that leaves lots of unresolved questions because the south had a long tradition of slavery it was a very proud people, uh, and 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 certainly with its virtue, with their virtues, and there. What what are you going to do for the newly freed men down there? You, it's one thing to declare slavery illegal. It's one thing to even win a war, but how do you patch the country back together? How do you protect federalism when the the country is that just vindicated the the sovereignty of the nation? And again, the, I think that the, the most pressing was. How do you how do you uh, make it so the South is a place where African Americans can be equal citizens under law, equal participants in the political process, given the, the history of slavery? So, as as monumental a task as Lincoln had, and no one should ever underestimate that in winning the Civil War, it w no one should underestimate the monumental task in trying to put the country back together post Civil War that that, that was presented after Lincoln was assassinated. Yeah, Dr. Arn, uh, uh, Nicholas Lemon, who was for a long time the dean at the Columbia School of Journalism, very fine writer, wrote a book about Reconstruction. He told me you can spend an endless amount of time on Reconstruction. So many are the problems, so difficult are the challenges, but Americans generally don't know anything about it. No. It, um, you know, it, it uh, the, you know, America's principles have driven us somewhere, right? We're supposed to try to treat everybody as a human equal in their rights. But there's not, there's no historical legacy for that anywhere in the world, and so we had to learn how to do that, and we're still learning. It's hard to learn, 
and uh, the people who ran the Reconstruction for the North, some of them had a sort of a despotic temper, you know, because here's a, here's a logical problem that comes up if you're trying to run a free country. If people don't want to do a good thing and want to do a bad thing, and you make them do the good thing, then are they free anymore? I mean, I think that we're facing questions like that right now. And the trouble with going whole hog on that is the trouble that's stated in Madison's, in the 51st Federalist. Government is built on the fact that men are not angels, and also angels do not govern men. And so you put some class or group in charge of another group, and they might want that group that's subordinate to do the right thing, but how do you know? And how do you know that they won't use despotic power? And so it's a it's a extremely difficult balance. As I say, I think Grant in particular, he within the context of the constitutional forms, uh, he pursued uh, setting up an agitation in the South, a, a general direction in the South toward equal rights for blacks, and he got a long way down that road. But but he did not get all the way down that road. When we come back no, from break, uh, I'm going to ask uh, Professor Carrington to give us the the summary of how we got from the assassination of Lincoln to Grant, because there's this guy Johnson, and there are the radical Republicans in between, and. Basically, they did not agree on anything. And somehow we got the 13th and 14th Amendment, got the 13th Amendment because of Lincoln, but the 14th Amendment got out of there. And how did we get that? And then what did Grant, how did he come to get into politics? I don't even know that part yet because I haven't gotten that far in Chernow. Don't go anywhere, America, except to hillsdale.edu. They're open and having college up in Michigan. It is the Lantern of the North. And we will talk about that as well. Don't go anywhere, but come right back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. There's a lot of spin on the news out there. Where do you hear the truth? Right here. As soon as Hugh Hewitt returns, this is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, Professor Adam Carrington of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I'd love for them to do a series on Reconstruction. Professor, we have uh, Lincoln assassinated in the spring of 1865. The Vice President, Andrew Johnson from Tennessee, takes over, and he rules for four years against a Reconstructionist Congress that is full of radical Republicans. What happened in that period before Grant arrives? Right, and that's really important for knowing when Grant comes onto the scene. And the thing to remember about Johnson is he was never supposed to be president. He was a Tennessee Democrat, a unionist. They put him on the ticket with Lincoln to try to have a union party ticket in 1864 to to get loyal Democrats. And he was a man of many vices, pretty acerbic. Uh, it's it's. Uh, probably true that he gave an address at at the Lincoln's second inaugural inebriated so he, he he's a, he's not a, a terribly likable figure but then you have to understand that the the Republican party is composed of a, a radical element they were called radical republicans who wanted the most expansive change after after the civil war they didn't just want 
equal civil or natural rights for African Americans. They pushed for the vote, they pushed for jury service, and they pushed for a pretty massive reordering of Southern society by force, if necessary. And what you have is a collision course, because Johnson is very sympathetic to parts of the South. He wants a very lenient policy. He doesn't like a lot of the Reconstruction laws being passed, sometimes over his veto by the radical Republicans in Congress. He does intentionally a pretty poor job of enforcing the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which became the basis for the 14th Amendment, and all sorts of other attempts. You know, Congress was making the laws, and Johnson was doing intentionally a pretty poor job of enforcing them, causing the South to really, in some ways, reinstitute a, almost a shadow form of slavery at one point over the freedmen. And this comes to a head after Johnson gets up and, and does a round of speeches around the country, basically saying that the radical Republicans are uh, worse than the Confederates were worse rebels, uh, trying to destroy the government. It, it culminates in the radical Republicans impeaching and coming one vote away from removing Johnson in the first impeachment process in American history. And that really is part of the boiling over of the frustration of Congress over Johnson being the one executing the laws and, and the loggerheads they were at during that time. And, and Larry on, I always tell people we're not in a constitutional crisis, at least not according to people like Leo Strauss, unless you lose sight of your principles. And this is the closest in American history that the separation of powers comes to failing, in my view, other than the Civil War, where it does fail. And Lincoln has to to rule basically as commander in chief. But afterwards, they're trying to rule with the separation of powers and they can't agree on anything. And so there's a massive failure of government. Yeah, and, you know, it's a deeply divided country, which is rather like now, and, and I don't think we're there yet, but we approach that kind of thing here today. But it, it uh, the point is, uh, you know, I think if, I th you know, first of all, Andrew Johnson, as, An as Adam said, that was, he, he was, he, he was an amazing guy in some ways. He was elected to Senate, the only one ever, after he was impeached and finished his, uh, not convicted, and finished his presidency. Yep. So this is a guy who wouldn't go away. But he did really great service during the war because he stuck by the Union. He's the only Southern senator, seceding senator, who didn't resign. And so for that, it looked great. You know, Lincoln was trying to beat a bunch of people, including General McClellan, in 1864, and it was not a foregone conclusion he was going to do that. But then he gets to be president, and, and he's just not he, – he, first of all, he had terrible opinions, right? He basically just wanted to let the South do whatever they wanted to do uh, and, you know, resisted all efforts to, to, you know, help the blacks, to make sure they could vote, to give them some land so they could farm. And, and then he was, uh, he was uh, uh, brusque, rude – uh, not eloquent. Incendiary. Incendiary. And, and into this conflagration comes Grant. And when we come back, we'll talk about the return of Grant to the public stage, not as a general, but as a president. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, except to hillsdale.edu. We'll be right back.
a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I am joined by Hillsdale College's president, Larry Arn, and its professor, Adam Carrington, as we begin, I think, the first of two parts on American Reconstruction because of its applicability uh, to today. Uh, we are going out of order in our Great American Thinking series, sponsored by Hillsdale College. I want to talk to Professor Carrington about a man that I, I don't think... One percent of our audience will recognize the name Horatio Seymour. I I don't even think one-tenth of one percent of our audience will know who Horatio Seymour is. Uh, Tell us about him and about Ulysses S. Grant. Well, Seymour was the governor of New York and ended up beating out Andrew Johnson to run against Ulysses S. Grant in the 1868 general election, which actually surprised Johnson. Johnson thought there was no reason that the Democratic Party wouldn't nominate him to be the standard bearer. And him becoming the, the, um, the, the nominee really set the stage that the 1868 election was going to be a hard referendum on the future of Reconstruction. Grant had come out fully in favor of it. Uh, after keeping more quiet as a general, because he thought that uh, as a a general he shouldn't dip too much into policy. And uh, between that and what you have Seymour doing is really buckling down the the South as really the party that wanted to protect the legacy of the Confederacy. They wanted to immediately end Reconstruction. They ran along with his vice president, uh, one of the Blairs from Missouri, one of the most blatantly... um, uh, to be honest, racist uh, 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 presidential campaigns ever, and that's by any standard. It was very overtly uh, negative about the equality of blacks, the the possibility that they could live in company with whites, they could be part of the body politic. And uh, instead of the Democrats, as they later tried to do, moving on from the Civil War, really set the stage, and and I think in many ways just reassured Grant's victory because uh, there was no way the North was going to, to, to go that direction given what they had just fought and bled for in the last, uh, in eight, from 1861 to 1865. So before we get to the presidency, I have to ask the question of either of you. Uh, I know a little bit about Eisenhower when he came back from war in 1946, and it, it, he didn't want to run for president in 48, and he didn't. And uh, MacArthur didn't either. And he demurred and demurred. No one knew what he was going to do. And he finally got in in 52. And lots of people say God himself could not have beaten Dwight Eisenhower in 1952. Did Grant, uh, was he a reluctant candidate? Uh, Was he close to being William Tecumseh Sherman, if nominated, I shall not run, if elected, I shall not serve? Or was he ready to get on the saddle? He wasn't as negative as Sherman. Sherman actually also said that if he... If he uh, around that time that if he had a uh, to choose between being president for four years or being incarcerated for four years, he'd go to jail. Uh, <laughs> Sherman was always good for a quip, but at least uh, outwardly, Grant said that he didn't want it. His wife certainly wanted him to run. His father, who was very very ambitious, wanted him to run. Uh, I think that 
he was not upset to become president of the United States, but I don't think he had and his the way ambition manifested itself in him was different than a lot of what people think is the stereotype of politicians. I think he he wanted to be an honorable man. He wanted to be worthy of his his country. And I think in that sense, he was he was uh, not he was willing to be president of the United States. But I don't think he grabbed for it in the kind of self-serving way that 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 sometimes people attach to those seeking the office. And and Dr. Arndt, in the Chernow biography, and that's basically my entire knowledge of Grant's boyhood. I read the small book about him where he said, if you want to know the man, study the boy. He does not evidence great ambition for anything and at west point he's a fine horseman but that's about it and he did have a drinking problem that's not as widely uh, it's not as terrible as widely believed he was a binge drinker who could control it when he needed to but he, when he got out of the army in 1856 or something 1855 he has no political ambition and so the question is does that does that does the lack of that kind of north star early in life advance or or uh, retard the ability to govern once you strike out into politics? Uh, oh, well, so first of all, people just grow up in really different ways, right? I mean, Winston Churchill was, you know, a, a, what, he was a show pony when he was a kid, but he was largely not successful. Whatever he would apply himself to, he would do it spectacularly, but he didn't apply himself to most things. He didn't like to be required to do things. Uh, but he was, but you know, then there are certain spirits that are born, and Grant is one. Uh, Grant found himself on a battlefield. And Chernow makes the case that his drinking surfaced when he didn't have anything to do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I just think that he was just made for high pressure situations, and he excelled in them. And he, as Adam said, I don't think he had any ambition to ever to go into politics. In fact, you know, he spent a fair amount of his life as a poor farmer, and he wasn't a good farmer. No, he wasn't. And, and Professor Carrington, he was a good soldier. In the Mexican War, uh, as, as Dr. Arndt said, the show pony was Robert E. Lee and Zachary Taylor and, and uh, you know, the old fluff and feathers. But, not, but Grant was a quartermaster, and he was a heck of a good quartermaster. And and that experience really taught him how to be a. This is what you know when 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 Dr. Arn said that he's underestimated in the Civil War. I think he's underestimated because he didn't come across as as brilliant of a tactician as a Robert E. Lee. But where he I think out outdid Lee was that he knew how to manage a war on a national scale, and that began with running as a quartermaster, running a regiment on that kind of scale. And he did one extraordinary act of bravery during the Mexican War. He was, they, they, they were pinned down, uh, his, his, his group, and they asked for a volunteer to go get more ammunition. And he, being the great horseman he was, gets on the horse, rides it, um, rides on the side of the horse, with the horse facing the enemy fire and basically rides using the horse as a perfect shield all the way out to uh, to get 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 re get re, re, re resupplied. 
uh, extraordinary act that he was promoted for. But um, but no, it, it's very interesting that uh, he was restless when there was nothing to do and what they said had an uncanny coolness when every when things got hot that a lot of men panic a lot of men get scared when 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 under fire when there's a a a a a, 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 a tragedy that is taking place and that he was someone who got cool calm and collected and that that served him extremely well in the Mexican war and in the civil war too yeah, there is no limit to his... talent for a leader yeah, no limit to his physical courage, but that calm you're talking about, he didn't know he had it until he first came under fire in Mexico, and then he had it forever. I am I am curious, Dr. Arndt, that is also manifest in Lincoln, I believe Churchill, and, and Washington certainly, who they had to hold back, but it is not something you can guess at, right? You, you never That's know right. when you it's going to show up. You yourself don't know, right? Uh, so, you know, to, I, Lincoln didn't fight much, right? He was in one little war against some Native Americans, and he always poo-pooed that he did anything spectacular there. Churchill was in lots of battles all over the world, and he just he, he was never around gunfire where people didn't look at him and say, gosh, that guy's brave. And he was not excited. He was deadly. And... and you could tell he was kind of having a good time. <laughs> he said, well, like MacArthur, MacArthur, you know, dug out Doug is a slander. The man possessed enormous physical courage, but also this this preternatural calm. Churchill and MacArthur are the two stories that I know. There are probably are many others, but I know two of men fighting in the second in the first World War in the trenches, who cut a figure, who were kind of dashing. And they were obviously having a heck of a time. And, uh, and that, you know, that just, some people are made that way, right? And, and that, that means that later Grant took an interest in politics because he had qualified himself by his conduct of the war to be elected president of the United States. And, you know, the, the more spectacular, let's say, general on the Union side was, was Sherman, and he was completely unfit for it. He was a nervy guy, right? He he uh, he had a nervous breakdown once in his life, whereas Grant was uh, sober, oddly enough, for a drunk, and uh, and he was steady, and uh, and then he got and then he was very purposeful man. So this stuff about recon- reconstruction, he found effective ways to fight the armed forces that were gathered up under the Ku Klux Klan and other things. To perpetuate the subservience of the of the blacks, Professor he, Carrington, when when the war is over and Lincoln is killed and Grant demobilizes the Army of the Potomac, what does he do? Does he stay in the army? What does he? How does he get into politics? Yes, he's kind of forced to because of Reconstruction. He was the general of the army. That was a title that was created for him to be the first four-star general since George Washington, which itself spread rumors that he might run for president. And he, he oversaw both the mustering out of, the, of many of the volunteers to reduce the army to its regular size, but also because the South was basically occupied territory because of the breakdown of their governments, he was what the foremost administrator of Reconstruction in the South. And for a while, he, he tried to stay outside of politics. He tried to stay 
somewhere in between the Reconstruction Congress and and President Johnson tried to, uh, you know, keep both of them as happy as possible while enforcing uh, the the Reconstruction policies as vigorously as he could. And what really happened was there there came a break over the firing of Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War under Lincoln that stayed on under Johnson. And there was a point where Johnson asked Grant to do something in relation to that. I won't go into the whole long story that he just felt he couldn't do and had an irreparable break with Johnson. And then when he resigned from the Army, it became very clear that he was a a rock-solid Republican, even very sympathetic to the radical Republicans. And it was from there that the nomination was his as long as he would accept it. When we come back, we're going to talk about early Reconstruction, then I hope next week get into the details of it. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue will continue. Uh, Just do what you can to get over to Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu for uh, all of the great courses. And if you have a a senior in high school, send them to Hillsdale. Uh, They'll get a real education at Hillsdale College. This is The Hugh Hughes Show. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. And I have succeeded in eliciting a promise from Dr. Arne and Professor Carrington to return next week to do part two on Grant, because we're only up to 1868. Uh, Professor Carrington, what do you teach at Hillsdale? Well, I teach in the politics department and do a fairly wide range of classes. Of course, our U.S. Constitution course uh, also American political thought, but I also do a lot with uh, the courts, uh, the con law classes, and for, for fun, I also teach uh, some politics and literature where I try to introduce the students to Shakespeare and how he can help us with politics as well. Oh, how fascinating. I, I am, I, have you ever taught Grant and the Reconstruction? I have taught uh, a bit of the judicial opinions then, and a little bit about the uh, some of his speeches related to the enforcement of civil rights when I've taught the presidency. All right, so you, you pointed out in your notes to me that in 1860, I did not know this, his campaign slogan is, let us have peace. What does that mean? I mean, we did have peace. The Civil War was over. Appomattox had happened. What does let us have peace mean? It's recognizing that there was a reign of terror exercised over the South by the ascendant KKK, by the uh, brutalization of African Americans and loyal to the Union whites in the South, and that there was a military occupation, which doesn't seem very peaceful, and the intense uh, uh, battle in the North between the wings of the Reconstruction, the people that were more favorable to Johnson's uh, uh, laissez-faire, uh, approach to it and the more radical Republicans. So politically, socially, and even regarding peace and violence, it didn't feel like peace had been achieved at that point. And is that what you refer to, Dr. Arn, is the similarity with today? We've had an election. It doesn't feel like we've had a decision. No, well, you know, I think what, what I fear today, since you asked me, is they're going to reform electoral laws in ways that makes it uh, very difficult to ever to replace them. And, uh, you know, that's H.R. 1. That's the first bill in the, in the House. And, you know, a national takeover of 
electoral laws, and D.C. becomes a state, and all that. And then behind all that, this uh, uh, threat to pack the Supreme Court. And that means, you know, if you don't have relief in elections and you don't have relief in the courts, then you don't have relief. And uh, so that's what I fear. And I think Senator Cotton offered an amendment yesterday to prohibit packing the Supreme Court and it failed, which is is surprising to me because Joe Manchin has pledged himself to be against it. So I do not know what happened there. Let me ask you about Schuyler Colfax. Because it turns out Hillsdale College gave Schuyler Colfax an honorary degree in 1869. And he was uh, the speak, oh, Speaker of the House. So I should probably let Dr. Arden talk, no, no, you talk about him. Yeah. yeah, he was the Speaker of the House from Indiana, and he was uh, Ulysses S. Grant's running mate in 1868. And uh, probably Dr. Arden knows a little more about the background of it, but... He, he was a great defender of the rights of African Americans, a, a great defender of freeing of the slaves. Uh, Lincoln at times had an ambivalent view of him for other reasons, but he um, uh, certainly had views that align with Hillsdale's long tradition of uh, being in favor of the freedom of the slaves, in favor of the Union, and and spilling some of, of its blood and treasure to realize that truth. Yeah, an abolitionist, and and uh, like Grant's father, kind of a radical abolitionist. Jesse Grant was a radical abolitionist, and Hillsdale's kind of a radical abolitionist place, isn't it, Doctor Arndt? Oh yeah, uh, it was a you know it was a visiting ground in the out here on the frontier. You know Edward Everett. You know, who spoke, Massachusetts governor and senator who spoke before Lincoln at Gettysburg. He gave a talk here. He gave a lot of his books. Uh, but you have to remember about the college. The college was a thinking place back then. Still is, I fancy. And so it was both an abolitionist college and a constitutionalist college. And so under the Constitution, the federal government was not given power to abolish slavery in the states. It had to be amended to get that power. And so the policy that Lincoln ran in 1860 in favor of was just forbid it from growing. And then all the vast lands in the in the West will come in as free states, and then Lincoln would say slavery would be placed in the course of ultimate extinction. That policy was substantially invented right here at Hillsdale College. That's remarkable. Last question about Schuyler, Grant and Schuyler. We will, we will take up their administration next week. Why was he replaced on the ticket? Uh, Professor Carrington, do you know? Four years later? I'll actually have to take a look at that. I'm, I was drawing a blank, to be honest, uh, as yeah. to why. I know why. I know why Lincoln replaced Hamlin for, for, for Johnson. Uh, we talked about that then. One thing I will say, I, I will double-check that, and I apologize, is, is that was not uncommon to have reasons why for uh, political purposes of the votes you're trying to get to, to switch the ticket. Yeah, well, FDR did it, like, every every one of his four races. But uh, Henry Wilson became the VP the second term. We will take up the Grant presidency and its reconstruction and its war on the Ku Klux Klan and how you put a broken country back together again in part two of our conversation next week on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Thank you, Adam and Ben. Thank you, Harley. And, of course, radio blogger on Twitter, Dwayne. I'll talk to you on Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. But you absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.